right, hello everybody, and we're back! It is Original vs. Cover with DJ Crystal Clear, and we are at episode number 27. 27. I can't believe it. Oh, better watch out. It could die after this. <laughs> this this could be the death this of could the... Be, oh, shit, 27. That's yeah, right. Yeah, we ho- hopefully your podcast will not be in we'll, the 27 Club. We'll live longer than... Who? Kurt Cobain? Oh, just like a whole list Morrison, of people. Morrison, every, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I was looking at a website, sorry, we're, we're diverging already, or diver, di, 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 <laughs> yes, di, dissecting or whatever yeah. it is we're doing. Um, yeah, no, I was looking at a website that had a list, and there were all these, there was like 30 people, people, and half of them I didn't even know who they were. Yeah, Amy Winehouse, it's a lot of them. You can look that up on your own. All right, anyway, here we go. Song number one, and this song is called Got to Get You Into My Life. The original was done by some band from Liverpool. Yeah. Jerry and the Pacemakers. Jerry and the Pacemakers yeah. <laughs> from their album Revolver that came out in 1966. And the covers I have, I have two. I have uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears from the album called New City that came out in 1975. You know that one? I don't. Ooh. I don't know that one. You're in for a treat. I bet I am. <laughs> I, I'm, well, I was going to say, I'm going to uh, go out on a limb and say there's probably horns on it, but I mean, the Beatles oh, fucking version well, has horns on it. So. Yeah, you got to have horns on it. <laughs> and then the second cover is the obvious one by Earth, Wind, and Fire from that seminal... Seminal? <laughs> Do you, are you sure that's the word you want to use? Is that the word I want to use? The amazing and unbelievable, yet horrible and sad but good and funny but terrible oh the soundtrack from uh, sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band that came out in july of 1978 and was also on the best of earth wind and fire volume one that's probably the record you want to gonna want to go for if you want to get that track yeah but you know well, all right, I'll get into it in a minute. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> the original <laughs> is a song by the English rock band The Beatles, uh, came out in Revolver. <laughs> English rock band. In case yeah, you they didn't were know. really popular in the 60s. You, you probably heard of them. You might, you might have heard of them. And right now, this time capsule, there's this thing about them on TV or something that everybody's going crazy about. Um, it was written by Paul McCartney and credited, as usual, to Lennon McCartney. And it has been said that this song is an homage to the Motown sound with a colorful brass instrumentation and lyrics that suggest a psychedelic experience. And as Paul McCartney explained, it's actually an ode to pot. Yeah. Yep. Okay, psychedelic and pot, I get it. But an homage to the Motown sound? Well, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of supposed to be the Beatles' soul song. I mean, you know, it's as in as much as they can possibly pull that Be, off. So, because, well, I'll get to that in a minute. All right. Um, of course, it was uh, Lennon McCartney, but Paul was primarily responsible for the writing and, it, and uh, con- did the lead vocal on it. It was recorded at Abbey Road. You know, all you people know this stuff. So uh, the song seems to have been h- hard to arrange until the soul-style horns... I put that in quotation marks. (laughs) Strongly reminiscent of the Stax, Memphis, Soul, and Motown sound were introduced. The original version of the track, taped on the second day of the Revolver Sessions, featured an arrangement that included harmonium and acoustic guitar and a partly a cappella section repeating the words, I Need Your Love, sung by McCartney, Lennon, and George Harrison. Uh, In the description of author Robert Rodriguez, relative to the, quote, R&B-styled shouter, end quote, that the band completed in June, this version was a more, quote, hate Ashbury than Memphis. Author Devin McKinney similarly reviews the early take as a radiating piece in a hippie van. Oh, hippie van. And he recognizes the arrangement as a forerunner to the sound adopted by the Beach Boys over the 67-68 uh, Smiley Smile and Wild Honey. The brass was close-miked in the bells of the instruments, then put through a limiter. This session on May 18th marked the first time that the Beatles had used a horn section. Okay, so my beef is that these horns don't sound like Memphis or Stax or Motown. They sound like a military band. Well, that's, that's because you got fucking George Martin in there, you know. <laughs> With his lab coat on. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, that's the thing, is they're trying, but 
And that's the thing about the Beatles is that they do, a lot of stuff they do is them trying to imitate certain things, but they never actually hit the sound. It always ends up just sounding like the Beatles. Beatles, Because yeah. they, they're so strongly themselves. Like, there's so much shit that Paul McCartney does. He's just trying to be fucking Little Richard. But it doesn't really sound like Little Richard. Yeah. But in his head it does. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's... It's a brass military arrangement to me. That's not... Oh, all right, gent- click. All right, gentlemen, can you uh, make it swing yeah. a little hard? No. <laughs> yeah, you know, the they're you in like do. this... Because oh that's the God. thing, that those, those, those British studios, they were just so... I don't know, just so sterile, and there was just no yeah. vibe in those places. and No swing. Yeah. No vibe. Yeah. You know, it's amazing that the Beatles made records as good as they did. I mean, imagine if they had gotten to come over here and go to... Stacks. Yeah. Muscle Shoals. And I'm sure they would have loved to, but they probably had some contract where they couldn't step outside, like, you know, the, <laughs> the confines studio. of those four walls. Yeah. Because maybe they did want to follow Joe Cocker and whoever else came over here and recorded. The oh, Rolling they definitely Stones. did. They were always going... They were always going... How... How is it that the American records sound like this? Why can't we sound we like this? Like well, because the you know we just we're <laughs> yeah. not allowed to do, do this can't or use that, that because, and the fact that they were as innovative as they were, working with these people who were just so regimented and you can't do this and you can do that, but still they managed to do new shit. Yeah, amazing. So that's my beef with it. But anyway, um, so the covers, blood, sweat, and tears. I think that this is an odd yet interesting choice for them to cover. Uh, it's kind of Vegas-y. It's Chicago-y. It's upbeat and bouncy, stomping harmony, uh, backing vocals all over the place. It's like a come on, get happy. I like it, but then at the same time, I don't like it. And when you listen to it, you know, I think you'll understand yeah. what I'm saying here. Well, 70, 1975, that's past the expiration date. Or, or uh, uh Freshness date on Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, uh, like, maybe, again, like another example of they did it during rehearsal and, oh, yeah, this is good. Let's let's record this. Let's just do this. Oh, and let's put it on the album, not as a B-side to the single. So, right. Yeah. Weird. Um, so then Earth, Wind, and Fire was issued as a single in July 1978. And their rendition reached number one on the Billboard Hot Soul Singles chart <laughs> and number nine on the Billboard Regular Hot 100. Uh, it got to 33 on the UK Singles chart and was certified gold by the RIAA. So, the New York Daily News, when this record came out, described their version as, quote, oh so cool. Like, that's the best they could do. Uh, All Music noted the tune as a great remake. Cashbox also called their cover of the song an innovative rendition. Treble website placed this version as number 34 of the top 100 cover songs on the planet Earth. Wow. Yeah. So it won a Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Arrangement Accompanying Vocalists. Why? Like, it couldn't just win for the song i don't know i mean yes it is an amazing amazing arrangement but like what and it was also nominated for best pop performance by a duo or group with vocals well i mean imagine i imagine the whole thing giving it kudos for the arrangement not the song is because they wanted to give their kudos to earth wind and fire Fire. and that's their work not the song exactly well yeah so we're gonna listen to them now and then come back with a winner with an obvious winner i think I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there Ooh, then I suddenly see you Just to hold you And had you gone You knew in time We'd meet again For I had told you
Okay. <laughs> you lasted uh, 33 seconds. On the Blood, Sweat, and Tears On the Blood, version. Sweat, and Tears, yeah. we should, we should We should specify on the Blood, Sweat, and, and Tears. Tears version. 33 seconds, which is longer than I expected you to last. Uh, but you needed to hear the vocal come in. All right, so to me, the obvious winner here is Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well. I mean, the Beatles, yes. But... Earth, Wind, and Fire, it's like the way Aretha Franklin stole respect from Otis Redding, I think. Well, for me, there, more than a winner, there's just a loser. <laughs> and that loser is... <laughs> and that is so, so blood, sweat, and tears. tears. Like I said when we were listening to it, when you guys weren't privy to our comments, <laughs> yeah. uh, it sounded like fuck. It sounded like a Sesame Street version. Yeah, it sounded like somebody was on Sesame Street, you know, singing it amongst the Muppets. Like they're marching down the street. Da, 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 da. Yeah. they're so it's so high and bright. Yeah, yeah. Now, the Earth, Wind, and Fire version I love so much. I I can't really choose between them. You know what I mean? I I almost I I'm tempted to put Earth, Wind & Fire over the Beatles. And then when I go to do that, then I'm like, oh, but fuck. So it's, it's almost like, I, it, no matter which one of those I go to choose, I think of the other one and go, oh, but, but fuck. It's a Sophie's <laughs> you know? choice. Sophie's yeah, choice. Yeah, it's kind of a Sophie's choice. So, basically, I wouldn't blame anybody for choosing the Earth, Wind & Fire version over the Beatles. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a tie, man. The reason why I choose Earth, Wind & Fire is because... In the realm of covers, it's it's so fucking good because it's their they made it their song. They totally made it their song because it's Earth, Wind, and Fire. Of course, it's going to be amazing horn arrangement going on. And Maurice, you know, and he just do 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 do. I mean, he just comes in like Al Jarreau jazzing it up, and it's just so great. And am I tired of hearing the original version? I don't know. Maybe that's a part of it too, because when I think of it, all I hear is. Down, 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 got to get you into my life. Like, that just sticks out in my brain. All right. The guitar lick and him yelling. Well, you know, know what? The very, the first version I ever heard was the Earth, Wind, and Fire version. Oh, word? Yeah. Because, oh. I mean, you know, as, as I've mentioned a thousand times before, I, I when I first got heard and be, start to love the Beatles was when I was a little, little kid. Like, we're literally talking like three years oh, old. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing Beatles' second album and Abbey Road and Let It Be. But I didn't have access to their entire catalog right away. I'm like Revolver. I didn't. Oh. I didn't have or hear that album until I was like eleven or twelve. Oh, okay. So I mean, I remember getting that record and listening to it for the first time. I mean, I'd heard "Got to Get You Into My Life" before that, so I guess that doesn't really count. But I definitely hadn't heard it. I don't think before I heard the Earth, Wind, and Fire version. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm no shade on the Beatles. It's the Beatles, but the Earth, Wind, and Fire is just. Hot. It's it's one of the, it's one of the best Beatles covers I've ever heard. That's so for sure. Great, yeah. That goes in the pantheon. I'm probably going to wind up doing an all Beatles cover show at some point in time because there's so fucking many of them. Well, also that's that's going to be that would be an interesting episode because every single one of them will be like, oh shit, <laughs> Good shit. This what? or the Beatles. Uh, yeah. And in some cases, other things will win. Yeah, I. That's definitely one for me. That would win. All right, song number two is called My Sweet Lord. And don't think that I'm on a Beatles jazz. <laughs> I was going to say, aren't we? So we're doing that episode now, are we? Uh, no, we're not. But uh, it just, when I'm writing these things, sometimes they just, I don't know, blend into one another for some reason. Uh, all right, so My Sweet Lord. Uh, the original was done by, well, actually, I don't know if you know this, but the first version was Billy Preston's version. Billy right, Preston right, yeah, he let Billy Preston... He gave it to him. Yeah, yeah, he gave it to him to do. He did, He gave him a couple of songs yes. that, from that album yeah. to do before he did them. But we're talking like a couple of months earlier. Oh, a couple of so Two months. Yeah. Uh, so Billy Preston's came out on his album Encouraging Words in September of 1970. George Harrison put his out on his fantastic triple album, All Things Must Pass, in November of 1970. Yeah. And then the other cover I'm going to talk about is by Megadeth. <laughs> Did you know about this? No. <laughs> yes, Megadeth. Oh, Jesus. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> well, 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 I already, well, I already can tell you right now, there's a loser. <laughs> yeah. There's a loser in this game. 
And boy, wait until we hear this thing. So the surprise about it is that it's from Unplugged Live in Buenos Aires. In 1997. Oh, Jesus, another one of those metal bands doing Unplugged. Let me guess, is there a symphony behind them, too? No symphony. Oh, how did they resist that temptation? I don't know, but, you know, it's 18 guys playing acoustic guitars. All right, so, a lot of people have covered this song, including Andy Williams, Peggy Lee, Edwin Starr. The Chiffons. Oh, wait, sorry. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Johnny Mathis, Nina Simone, Julio Iglesias, Richie Havens, Boy George, Elton John. When did Elton John... What? I don't, I don't even... I couldn't even... He's done it live or something. something it's not like on any that. of his albums. No. Jim James, Bonnie Bramlett, and Elliot Smith. I didn't know about that. Uh, and I've heard the Richie Havens version, which is why I didn't put it in here. Listen to it on your own, people, if you dare. Uh, my <laughs> sweet guess, Lord, 10 minutes. Uh, 15, it's 20. 15, yeah. It's too fucking long. My Sweet Lord was ranked 454th on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Well, I don't know Their about 2004 that. list, because that changes all the fucking time. And number 270 on a similar list published by the New Music Express in 2014. That same year, My Sweet Lord was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It reached number one again in Britain, and uh, when it was re-released in January of 2002, two months after George Harrison died. So, uh, he released it in 1970 on All Things Must Pass, as I said. Uh, it was also released as a single. It was his first as a solo artist. Topped the charts everywhere. It was the biggest selling single of 1971 in the UK. And it was the first number one single by an ex-Beatle. Harrison originally gave the song to his fellow Apple Records artist Billy Preston to record. And uh, so that's why I beat him out by a couple of months. So, for those of you who don't know about this whole controversy... And uh, the lawsuit and everything, so or the background at all. So Harrison wrote this song in praise of the Hindu god Krishna, while intending the lyric as a call to abandon religious sectarianism, sectarian, sectarianism, bleh, through his blending of the Hebrew word hallelujah. Did you know that hallelujah was Hebrew? Uh, no. I didn't know that. Uh, with chants of Hare Krishna and a Vedic prayer. The recording features producer Phil Spector's wall of sound treatment and heralded the arrival of Harrison's slide guitar technique, which one biographer described as musically as distinctive a signature as the mark of Zorro. Preston, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, and the group Badfinger are among the other musicians on the recording. So the Billy Preston version... Uh, the Beatles were still together officially in 69, December of 69. Harrison had no plans to make a solo album of his own and reportedly intended to offer My Sweet Lord to Edwin Hawkins. Instead, following the Delaney and Bonnie tour, he decided to record it with Billy Preston, for whom Harrison was co-producing a second Apple album, Encouraging Words. The recording took place at Olympic Studios in London in January 1970, Preston as uh, principal musician, supported by George Harrison, bass guitar, and drummer from the Temptations backing band. The Edwin Hawkins singers happen to be on tour in the UK as well, so Harrison invited them to participate. So Preston's version differs from Harrison's later re- recording, that the Hallelujah refrain appears from the start of the song, and rather than the full mantra section. The words Hare Krishna are only sung twice throughout the whole track. With the Vedic prayer also absent, uh, people have viewed this original as the definitive, quote, roots take of the song, citing its pure gospel groove and the Hawkins' participation. Have you heard that whole album, Encouraging Words? No. Well, it's an interesting record. It was kind of, it felt a little uptight to me. Like this cover version, it's gospel all day, black church, you've heard it, you know, the whole nine. But the other songs on it feel a little stiff. You should give it a listen. Have a listen. (laughs) Have a listen sometime. Um, Yeah, so it kind of, well, not kind of. I mean, they're just completely different. George Harrison is this 
hippie, you know, peace and love thing, and Billy Preston's literally taking us to church. Um, so, yeah. Oh, so the controversy, right. This so is later, where we in the first place. I forgot, yeah. So later in the 1970s, My Sweet Lord was at the center of a heavily publicized copyright infringement suit due to its similarity to the Ronnie Mac song, He's So Fine. Doodling, doodling, he's so fine. For the people who don't know that, it was a 1963 hit for the New York girl group, The Chiffons. And in 1976, Harrison was found to have subconsciously plagiarized the song a verdict that had repercussions throughout the music industry. Rather than the Safan song, he said he used the out-of-copyright Christian hymn, Oh Happy Day, as inspiration for the medley. Yeah. So for people who don't know that, it's, Oh Happy Day, Oh Happy Day. And, uh, I mean, it's to me, it's dead on. He's so fine. Well, it definitely doesn't sound like... Uh, well, I don't think he was trying to mimic the, the melody of Oh Happy Day. He was just trying to do something him like that yeah. in that style but not trying to plagiarize anything and you know he, my sweet lord he's so, so fun eh. it's i mean you know yeah but it's definitely wasn't intended because um no. i mean come on because that's the thing i mean you let's say george harrison's all tapped out or whatever you know like the the uh, songwriter the the caliber of george harrison isn't going to go oh I know what. I'm going to steal that Chiffon's Fun fucking song. song. Yeah. No, he's going to go for some meatier stuff. Right. If he's going to purposely steal. Steal. Right. And just like, this is why I, well, one of many reasons why I'm not a songwriter, because I've been a DJ for centuries now, and I have so much music in my head that whenever I've, except for punk rock songs I wrote in the 80s, but that was different. But if I were to sit down and try to write a song, it would be, it's really hard for me to do because I have so much other stuff in my head that it's going to... I'm immediately going to go to somebody else's something and I'm just going to plagiarize it because I'm not a music... I'm not... Hey. Uh, <laughs> no, I know. I struggle with that too. I mean, you know, you know, big time. Yeah, that's just what would happen. Yeah. So I'm not mad at him for it. I mean, it sounds dead on, but hey, it was in the subconscious and it just came out. Right. I mean, granted, there was some stuff in his case and in John's case where they did it knowingly. I mean, you know, obviously, John straight up stole the opening line of Come Together from Chuck Berry. I mean, that's those are his lyrics, and John knew exactly what he was doing. And Something by George Harrison, Something in the Way She Moves, mm. that's a fucking James Taylor song on his Apple record. He just went, oh, that's a nice line, I'll I'll have that. that. Who's this new upstart guy (laughs) on our little label who isn't going to go anywhere? I'm a Beatle, I'll take this, and everybody will know me for it. Right. And it is true that everybody does know George for it, but that's, that's a James Taylor line. Exactly. Oh, the ins and outs. Now, I don't remember, because I didn't want to bother to look it all up, what the end end game, what the end was of that lawsuit. Like uh, they, George ended up having to pay some stupid amount some to money. somebody uh, who probably shouldn't have gotten it. I mean, was Bob... <laughs> was, you know, somebody, probably not even the person who wrote it. You know, just some asshole who owns the rights to it. Yeah. Yeah, because I... Yeah, I wonder who had the rights to it at the time. Oh, well, that's how it goes. All right, so we're going to listen... Oh, right. And then the Megadeth. Well, oh, yes. <laughs> Let us not forget the Megadeth version. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we should just listen to it. We're just going to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. I can't say anything. We're just going to listen to it.
you Fucks, fucking fuck, fuckity I mean, fuck's sake. What the hell? And they're yeah, come on, yelling at the audience to sing along. Come on, come on, sing get along. into this. We're, we're get, blowing the doors off up uh, here. Everybody uh, react. <laughs> for, I mean, I guess they know the song of Buenos Aires back then. Oh, no, they know it. They just also probably know that these guys are doing a shit version. I mean, wow. Wow. That's what? Oh, bloody awful it is. Yeah, boy, that's that's. Disgraceful. Terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Well, for me, it's a tie between George Harrison and Billy Preston. Yeah, well, yeah. Like I said, Megadeth definitely loses. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with George, but, you know, that's 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 no shade on good old Billy, but I, it, it isn't even really about... Yeah, it's not really about whether Billy's version is better or George's version. Megadeth's version is fucking god awful. <laughs> That's what this is about. <laughs> oh, man. This is what this is. If you take anything away from this, people, <sighs> wow, and it's that Megadeth's version Megadeth is really sucks. shitty. Sucks, my sweet lord. That's not even Cookie Monster. That's like yeah. how how what? It's, it's sick Cookie. It's Cookie Monster sick in bed. And then you can't even you can't even play the slide. And then you're playing it wrong. Like, did you hear that? All these wrong notes? Oh, man. Well, you know, it's Dave Mustaine and Co. What do you expect? Oof, terrible. You know, I've never been a Megadeth fan. I I really loved Metallica back in the early, you know, in the day, like at the time of their first three albums when Cliff Burton was still around. Right. But Megadeth, who was sort of like the... Offshoot? Yeah, I never was into them. At my most metal moments, I was not into them. <laughs> when you were most metal. Most metal. <laughs> At my most metal, metal, I was indeed not a I, fan. I never... Uh, what was their biggest hit? Oh, fuck, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Dave Mustaine, he just he just always seemed very angry. Yeah. Mad at the world, like somebody did something to him. I don't know. But he also, he's just terrible. Like, he's a terrible singer. Yeah. And it, yeah, it isn't even I, it isn't even a personal thing. Like, yeah, he does seem like he's an angry prick, but even if he was the nicest guy on earth, like he he he's really terrible. Yeah, he doesn't sing well. I don't he's, think he plays that. Uh, yeah, it's just you know. I like his hair color though. I like a ginger. <laughs> that sort of ginger gold. The ginger gold. It's really beautiful natural hair color. I'll give you that, Mustaine. All right, song number three is called Tossin' and Turnin'. And the original was done by Bobby Lewis in 1960. And the cover that I have was done by Peter Chris <laughs> from his solo album in 1978. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So uh, Tossin' and Turnin' is a song written by Richie Adams and Malou Renee and originally recorded by Bobby Lewis in the fall of 1960. It was released on the Belltone label in December... It reached number one on both Billboard Hot 100 on July 1961 and the R&B chart and has since become a standard oldies compilation thing. Everybody's tossing and turning. Uh, It was named the number one single on the Billboard chart for 61 after spending seven consecutive weeks at the top. It was also featured on on the soundtrack for the 1978 film Animal House. And... um, on the original hit single version, the track begins with, I couldn't sleep at all last night, and it appears this way on most oldies compilations. However, on some releases, the song has a prelude where he sings, Baby, baby, you did something to me, followed by a musical cue into the first verse. Did you, have you ever Oh, heard? that must be like the, uh, 
the disco 12 inch version with all <laughs> yeah. the added shit. Well, that's, prob- that's probably literally an album version versus a single, single version. Single version, yeah. Um, and he usually included the prelude when he performed the song live. According to several sources, the personnel on the original hit recording included guitarist Wild Jimmy Sproul. And in 2008, Billboard magazine ranked the song as the 27th biggest song of all time that charted on the Billboard Hot 100. Damn, really? Yeah. 27th. I don't know about that. I. <laughs> I mean, Where do you get this information? <laughs> May I see your data? The, I don't know how Billboard calculated that. Uh, commemorating its 50th anniversary on the chart, it is only one of six songs from the 1960s to spend at least seven weeks in the number one position on the Billboard Hot 100. Who knew? People couldn't I get didn't know it was that, that big of a hit. Yeah, it was. It was, I remember hearing it on the radio in the 70s all the time. As a kid. Yeah. And not even, I mean, not even on just the AM station, but like on the FM stations too. Well, there was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that they played in the 70s on the hit stations that was old that I was hearing for the first time on those stations that I didn't know, I didn't know those songs were old Old. because I was hearing them now on the radio. Right, yeah. Yeah, I love that song. And then the cover by Peter Chris. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so people who are not familiar with these Kiss solo records. Who would that be? It better not be you. <laughs> you listening right now, that better not be you. It better not be you. You should all know about these... These... You should all know about those records. Those Kiss solo albums. Those Kiss solo albums. So they uh, they run the gamut. Which do you think is the best one? Ace oh, Frehley? Jesus. By far the Ace Frehley album. It's not even a contest. Yeah. Now, ec- except for one... Like, they were all... Were they all originals on there except for... Ace? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he New York Groove is a cover, but right. other than that, it's, it's Ace It's all originals. Songs, yeah. So that's why his is the best. Everybody else's record is just... It's... Well, Paul's is all all originals, but it's still, and, but it's still not as good as Ace's. Yeah. So Gene Simmons did, I don't know what, because he can't write songs by himself? I don't know. Well, most of his songs are originals. I think uh, When You Wish Upon a Star, I think, is the only cover on that. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right, because who else would write Living in Sin at the Holiday Inn? I mean, come on. I forgot, yeah. So that's a very weird cover, but he does a great job. On when you wish upon a star. That sounds so like fucking great. Dave Mustaine doing it. It's so terrible. But Peter Chris doing tossing and turning. Can go fuck itself. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that basically the Peter Chris album, these guys, when they went, the four of them went to do their four solo albums, they kind of each went and did, people say, you do you. Well, all four of those guys went and they did them. Yeah. And so Ace went and just did a straight-ahead rock and roll album, as did Paul, maybe a little bit more melodic, but straight-ahead. Gene just kind of made this all-over-the-place album. <laughs> so crazy. You know, he kind of did this thing where it's like, okay, okay, people. some people like to buy this kind of stuff. Okay, well, I'll put that but in there. there. Some people like to buy that. Okay, well, I'll put I'm that in do there. That. And yeah. then he brought every fucking... Celebrity, Ready, he could, every share. celebrity he could get his hands on, who would actually would consent to come into the studio with, with him, him. Yeah. put him on there, and tried to make the biggest, de- you know, like Gene, tried to make the biggest deal out of it, so everybody go whoa. whoa. <laughs> but he kind of, what he, you know, maybe put that kind of effort into songwriting, Gene. Yeah. Peter went and did kind of like this soul R and B influenced record, but it's like the that late seventies version of soul okay. R and B, and it's another one of those things. Like I was saying, Paul McCartney in his head, he sounds like Little Richard, but he. Well, Peter Chris in his head, he thinks he's doing. He thinks he's doing Stacks and Motown, but it's 1978. Right, strike one. Yeah, stri- yeah, <laughs> and so. Most Kiss fans hate that record because it's about as far away from a Kiss record as you can get. I really liked it as a kid because I was eight and I listened to all kinds of different shit. I wasn't just like, dude, rock. If it isn't rock, it sucks. So that kind of didn't bother me, right? But it wasn't as good as the other ones. And I guess the whole the the point I'm making by going on this whole jag is that I don't hate that album like most Kiss fans do, and I like quite a few of the songs on that. But if there's one track I fucking hate on that record, it's, it's this, this one. one. <laughs> yeah. I was 12, and 
I wasn't like, if it ain't rock, it sucks. No. But I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. But I also understand why he would do it because of his age and growing up listening to it as a, when he was a kid. And, yeah. It, you know, it's a rocking song in his 50s and bleh. Yeah. So I, I get it, but it's just so bad. It's just so bad. It's terrible. Well, and then then after the solo albums, Kiss reconvened and went did Dynasty and went on the Dynasty tour and they each did one song, song from the from solo the albums. That's right. And when they come to Peter's song they fucking do Tossing and, and Turning. Turnin'. I'm thinking there are so many songs <laughs> they could have done from that album that would have been like that's as bad as that track is on the album Kiss's live version on that oh. tour are you fucking kidding me? Oh dude I saw that shit live. Yeah, it was terrible. That was that one of their worst tours. So bad. So, so bad. And people, the the show that I saw in Philly, people were booing. As well they should. Yeah, just like, boo! Because some, pe- some of them were like, What's, what the hell is this song? I, why is he doing this song? I don't understand. Because they didn't listen to the album. Well, so. even if they knew the album, that's grounds for booing. Yeah, boo. Boo hiss. So we're going to listen to these two and then... <laughs> and then choose who wins. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't sleep at all last night Just to thinking of you Maybe things weren't right Well, I was tossing and turning Turning and tossing oh, Tossing and turning all night I kicked the blankets on the floor Obviously, Bobby Lewis wins this. By planets. By solar <laughs> by systems. By solar systems. <laughs> <laughs> by millennia. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, poor Peter Chris. Oh, well, that's that. <clears throat> if you want to torture yourselves further, then listen to the whole solo album of his. Listen to all of them, actually, I would say. Well, you know, I really... Eh. I actually like all four of those solo albums to varying degrees. Yeah, yeah. I really don't think Peter Chris's album is bad. There are some bad tracks on it, but there's a substantial number of tracks yeah, on it that I genuinely like. The, yeah, I'm not saying it's the just whole not thing what is, you're expecting. Right. Like I'm if you're in a Kiss frame of mind, then yes, this isn't going to take you where you are. <laughs> right. I, they're just interesting to listen to for people who have not heard any of it at all. Yeah. The Gene Simmons was my favorite because it was just so. It was just so funny. It's it's weird. It's not bad. It's just fucking it weird. It was really weird. And then when I read all the... P- Helen Reddy, Diana Ross, Cher, like everybody... Yeah. Some, like he went to Studio 54, opened up the door and was like, I can't go in here because I don't do drugs and I don't approve of what you're doing, but I need you in the studio right no, now. No, 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 and, and, yeah, I can't <laughs> be in here for more than five minutes because I can't be in close proximity in of cocaine. Right. And then they all just ran down to where the, you know, wherever. Well, you know, actually, well, actually, while we're talking about the Kiss solo album is one thing, and you probably knew this, but it, it hasn't come up yet, that uh, Gene tried to get John Lennon and Paul McCartney to come do backing vocals I, on it, and he con- he reached out but never heard back. So instead, in lieu of them, he got the guys from Beatlemania <laughs> in. 
<laughs> I do remember that. But he, Gene, tries really hard to get that feather in his cap. Yes, most nobody could get the Beatles back together, but I, Gene Simmons, did. Well, yeah, you, Gene Simmons, failed. You failed. <laughs> and I did see Beatlemania on Broadway, and I gotta say, those guys sounded exactly like them. They were dead on. I saw I, it like I three saw it times. It was amazing. At the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Yeah. Oh. Not on Broadway. Definitely not Broadway. The Orphan Theater in San Francisco, which is uh, as Broadway as it gets. Yeah, for out the, for San Francisco, sure. Yeah, it was it was good. So listen to those records, people, because it's something. Especially non-Kiss fans, just do it. Yeah, actually, that's that would be interesting. I'd be interested to hear what people who aren't Kiss fans would say about think of the, about these records. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. All right, song number four is called "Got the Time." And the original was done by Joe Jackson from his album Look Sharp in January 1979. And I have one cover of this. And that cover is by Anthrax from their album Persistence of Time that came out in 1990. Uh, So so this song was written and performed by the British new wave artist Joe Jackson appearing as the closing track on a 79 album, Look Sharp. And uh, he plays this in concert all the time. Yes? I've only seen Joe Jackson twice, and he played both times I saw him. Uh, He wrote it in 77 before assembling the final version of the Joe Jackson Band. Jackson recalled the driving nature of the song was a struggle for his then-drummer Dave Cairns. Jackson explained in his memoir, A Cure for Gravity. Got the time gave Dave a lot of trouble. The style I wanted, fast, sharp, and intense, was a long way from Dave's loose, funky approach. This was one guy, I thought, who might not survive the transition to New Wave. <laughs> Which, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so the um, Anthrax cover from their album, Persistence of Time. Are you an Anthrax person? No, I'm not. Um, but... Yeah, I'm, re- I'm really not. Well, apparently you missed out because this well, band's version was cited by all music. <laughs> as, no, no, I've heard their version. I'm just not oh, a fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a standout track from Persistence of Time. Uh, Jackson did not hold Anthrax's version in high regard. In the June 1991 issue of Q Magazine, Jackson remarked, I think it sounds kind of clumsy compared to the way we did it on the live album. I mean... Our version is really smoking. Theirs actually is slower than ours and kind of lumpin'. I like that. Yeah. Lumpin'. Lumpin'. The way I feel about it is, thanks for the royalties, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In another interview, he explained, I could never quite understand why they were called a, quote, speed metal band, because we played the song about twice as fast as they did. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I, I've i also seen him play... Shit, I saw him in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, and every fucking time he played that song, and every fucking time he played that song fast, faster than Anthrax. Speed metal. Way yeah. faster than his own studio version. But, li- but you know how it is. When bands do things live, they generally do it faster, faster. than the record. Yeah. And Joe Jackson's studio version is pretty damn fast. So yeah, so he's doing it faster live. And yeah, he's right. It is faster than their... Or his live version is faster. Well, Joe Jackson outdoes the speed metal. And there were a couple of other people who covered this that I couldn't even get into. The Donuts or the Do-Nots, the Matches, Beth Thornley and Fabulous Disaster. I don't know who the hell that is. From a 2004 album called Different for Girls, Women Artists and Female Fronted Bands Cover Joe Jackson. (laughs) Ever heard of that? No, but it's it's a great title because because of course it's the Joe Jackson song, right? For the uninitiated, yes. Um, Brenda Earl Stokes and folk metal band Corpa Klani. Folk metal? I'm not fucking with that. All right, so we're gonna check out both of them and then pick Joe Jackson as the winner.
And we're back. Yeah. And anthrax stinks. And scene. Yeah, I mean, Joe Jackson obviously wins, <laughs> wins that. that. I mean, yeah. and it, it makes sense that Anthrax would do that song or that a band like Anthrax would do it because that is kind of proto-thrash. Yeah. Or, or proto-speed. Not thrash, proto-speed metal. Not metal, it's proto-speed. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I could see a, a speed metal band listening to that going, yeah, we're that, doing that. that. Yeah, you know? I get it. And to think that those Anthrax people would even know who Joe Jackson is yeah. and want to do that uh, you know the way that everybody is so separated it's like why would some speed metal band be listening to somebody like joe jackson well you know, i mean that, it's wave. probably because Ugh. it was but they grew up with it well also i think it might have been the times i mean that record of 79 things weren't as separated at that time like those guys probably heard it oh no they definitely heard it well but obviously like, they heard it but yeah but i'm saying like when they did it in 1990 whatever and people were like huh you know like why would they do that like other weird metal bands that do weird covers that I've talked about and it's like why would they be doing that <laughs> right um, their fans I would imagine would be like who the fuck is Joe Jackson why are you doing this but whatever alright song number five is called Girl You Know It's True <laughs> <laughs> and the original version is by New Marks oh shit from their album Our Time Has Come released in 1987 wow who's the cover by the cover is by some weird band, well, band, these two dudes called Millie Vanilli. And oh, that's the early version uh, of Fab and Rob. That's like the early days of Fab and Rob. Well, no. Or Rob and Fab. They're Rob and Fab. No, they're completely different people. That's true. Actually, that's true. That's yeah. True. Um, and there, uh, the Millie Vanilli thing came out in 1988, a year later. So the song was written by Bill Pettaway Jr., Sean DJ Spen Spencer, and Kevin Lyles, Rodney Cool Rod Holloman. <laughs> <laughs> cool Rod with a K? Uh, yes. And uh, Kai Adeyemo, most of whom were members of the Baltimore, Maryland bass group New Marks, who first recorded the song. Now, I remember hearing this in clubs in 1987. Uh, it, I was in L.A., and one of the places I used to go out dancing with my friend Mike Dampierre and his, uh, well, it was 1987, nobody was getting married then, but basically his husband, Andy. And we would go to this notorious lesbian club called Coconuts out on Santa Monica Boulevard. And which is where I saw Whitney Houston for the first time with her girlfriend, Robin. Uh, and we would dance to this song, Girl, You Know It's True. And then a year later, here comes Millie Vanilli, and we were like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> <laughs> we thought, oh, they did it again under some weird name, but no, completely different. So Oops, they did it again. For people <laughs> who are not familiar with Frank Farian... I talked about him in episode 11 when we talked about The Rivers of Babylon, the cover by Boney M. So Frank Farian was, is this white German guy who, when it came to Boney M, he did all the vocals himself and hired those black people to just like lip sync to, to shit. To be the faces, yeah. To be the faces of it. The guy with the afro with the side part, he wasn't singing. That was an old white German dude. So he discovered Millie Vanilli. He put Millie Vanilli together, and then the rest is history. So we're going to listen to both of these, and um, and nobody's going to win. <laughs> Girl, you know it's yes, you know it's true. Oh, oh, oh. Crap 
your smile and everything you do Don't you understand, girl, this love is true Your soft, silky hand, long, sweet and thin That candle like a weapon upon your skin It lightens up my day and that's also true Together we're one, separated with two To make it all mine, all mine is my desire Cause you contain qualities I admire To put it plain and simple, you rule my world So try to understand Okay, so they, they, I mean, Frank Farian, it was exactly the same, except it was sped up. They just did it like a couple beats faster. The original is not a slow jam, but it's definitely slower. Yeah. But I mean, even the opening line, the opening rap, and it's just, it's word for word. Right. Well, it's one of those things where that track probably was only known in the clubs. Yeah. And barely that. And so he probably kind of figured, oh, well, nobody's going to know what the fuck this is. I can rip this off wholesale. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Mind-boggling. But, uh, yeah. So that's that. Yes. <laughs> wow. So which, which one, which one, well, okay, to choose a winner, which one sucks more? I guess neither of them. That's they, they really hard. Just They're just the both thing. terrible. Mm. Well, not terrible. I mean, I do, I do have fun memories of the original, and. But that's more. That's more what you were doing and people you were with, with rather than actually than hearing actually the song. liking the song. Yeah, I don't think that it's a great song to begin with. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not that great, even for the time period and the. All electronic instrumentation and the the whole vibe. I mean, it's very much another song that that is a time capsule of that time and that year specifically, Aye. which Paul obviously hates. Yes, that 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 is a moment in time. Well, actually, I'm getting uh, <laughs> I'm getting rocket on you here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, uh, yeah, it's not great material to begin with. Yeah. And Frank Farian picking two cuter-looking dudes lip-syncing to... Ugh, whatever, it's a mess. All right. Last song. Song number six. It's called Go Away, Little Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Beat it. And the original was done by Bobby V., and it was released March 28th, 1962. It's a popular song written by who, Paul? You know what? I don't know who wrote that song. What? Oh, but, my God. I don't know. John Lennon? No. <laughs> Buddy Holly? No. Who, who fucking wrote it? Carol King and oh, Jerry Gotham. I actually didn't know that Carol King wrote that song. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, she co-wrote that song. Uh, first recorded by Bobby V for Liberty Records. Uh, 1962, and the lyrics consist of a young man asking a young, attractive woman to stay away from him so that he will not be tempted to betray, betray his steady girlfriend by kissing her. Kissing. Mm. Uh, the song is notable for making the American Top 20 three times. For Steve Lawrence in 1963. Which is the one I thought was the original. Oh, oh see, yeah. Uh, and that hit number one. For The Happenings in 1966. 
<laughs> but of course, I hit number twelve, and for Donny Osmond, <laughs> which is of course the first version I ever heard, exactly in nineteen seventy one, and that was the U.S. number one hit. It is also the first song, and only one of nine, to reach the U.S. number one by two different artists. So the covers I have are Steve Lawrence which came out in late 1962 as a single only. And then Donny Osmond's was July 31st, 1971. So Steve Lawrence uh, released his in late 62. Uh, yeah, it reached number one in January 63, remained in the top position for two weeks, and it spent six weeks atop the U.S. Easy Listening Chart. And then it went to number 14 on the Hot R&B Singles Chart. R&B? R&B. Okay. Steve Lawrence. Oh, for fuck's sake. On a The Steve R- Lawrence version? R&B singles chart. I well, don't understand that. Well, actually, I wouldn't understand any of them going, but, you know. I mean, it... it you raise your eyebrow at Got to Get You Into My Life <laughs> and this shit. I, Are you kidding me? But I think it's a testament to how great a song it was, and black people liked it, I guess. But it oh, should not... Okay. Be, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Donny Osmond's cover version reached number one on the Hot 100 on September 11th, 1971. It remained in the top position for three weeks. His solo version also went to 36 on the Australian Go Set chart and was certified gold by the RIAA on October 13th, 1971. How old was he when the song was recorded, Paul? Oh, fuck, I don't know, 12? 13. 13, yeah. Good enough. All right, we're going to listen to these and pick who wins. Go away, little girl. Go away, little girl. I'm not supposed to be alone with you. I know that your lips are sweet, but our lips must never meet. I belong to someone else, and I must be true. Oh, go away, little girl. Go away, little girl. It's hurting me more each minute that you delay. When you are near me like this, So go away, little girl, before I beg you to stay. Go away, little girl. Go away, little girl. I'm not supposed to be alone with you. Your lips are sweet But our lips must never meet I belong to someone else And I must be true It's hurting me more each minute that you delay When you are near me like this You're much too hard to resist So go away, little girl, before I beg you to stay It's hurting me more each minute that we delay. 
Go away, Bobby V. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> that vocal is really weird, right? It's really stiff. Yeah. Go away, right. little girl. girl. Go away, away, little girl. Little girl. But the echo that they put on it? Yeah, that's a little uh, Joe Meekish. Yeah, and the boing. But it's that early '60s thing when Joe Meek was kind of riding high, so the, the, so whoever produced that probably was imitating it. Yeah, and a little piano flourish, bling bling. Man, woo wee. That's 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 a this is a slew of shit. How do we choose? I uh, yeah. You I, know what? <laughs> no, no, no. I I, I realize I, I know who I'm going to choose. I'm going to I'm going to choose. I'm 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 elbowing in right now to choose. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm giving it to Steve Lawrence. Thank you. Yes. That's what I was going to say. Steve Lawrence yeah. wins. I love Steve Lawrence's voice. I love Steve and Edie, the whole Vegas, they're losers thing, you know, because they're not quite in Frank Sinatra's posse. And right. they're always, we're always kissing his ass. But Steve Lawrence has always had a really beautiful voice, I thought. I've always liked him. I have no problem with him. You know what? I just don't like that song. So in my issue with his version of that song, it's the song. It's not him. Him, yeah. It's a, but it's, it's a, uh, I think it's very much of the time of 1962, you know, bubblegummy, like innocence sort yeah. of deal. But it's just, you know, I just don't like that one. But yeah, he definitely has the best voice of the three, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Donny Osmond's a 13-year-old kid, you know, sounds like practically castrati. Yeah. And... Super high and nasal. Yeah, and and Bobby V, like we were mentioning, just sounds stiff and soulless. (laughs) He sounds upset that he's (laughs) even recording, go away, Uh, little girl. I have to do this dumbass song. I don't want to sing this song. Yeah. Um, And I will say that when I lived in L.A., I saw Stephen Edie. In Vegas, and it was, oh, it was so great. He has a, yeah, he just has a really beautiful voice, and for people who really know me, know that I spent the better part of 2020 watching the Nanny reruns, because I was trapped in my apartment and couldn't do anything, like everybody else was, and it was a show that I did not watch during the time period it was on, because it was the 90s, I guess, and I didn't have TV. I don't know. But anyhow, I got sucked into the vortex of the nanny. And he played her father. Oh, interesting. I don't think I've ever actually watched an episode, so I wouldn't know that. Yeah, and when she got married, when she finally married Mr. Sheffield, Mr. Sheffield, uh, he sang at her wedding on the show. And it was so beautiful. So great. You know, he was 100 years old or whatever, and he sounded amazing. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, Steve Lawrence wins. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So that is the end of episode number 27. Stay tuned for episode number 28. Thank you for listening in, and happy motoring. (laughs) 